This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Several episodes ago, Cultivating Place spoke with the Ruth Bancroft Garden in Walnut Creek, California. That remarkable garden resulting from one woman's passion and dedication became the garden that essentially launched the Garden Conservancy, an American nonprofit organization founded in 1989 by Francis Cabot. The Conservancy is dedicated to preserving exceptional gardens and landscapes for the future. Today we're joined by George Shakespeare, longtime staff member and communications director of the Garden Conservancy based in Cold Springs, New York, to hear more about the Conservancy, the gardens and landscapes it's working to conserve, and its dynamic annual open days programs, which brings access to many, many other private gardens across the country each year. Welcome, George. Welcome. So tell us a little bit about your personal history with plants and nature and what brought you to work in this field. Well, my, my interest in gardening and plants and nature goes back, way back. Uh, when I was perhaps six years old, I discovered uh, the magical thing of planting a seed and getting a plant and then flowers and sometimes tomatoes or produce, um, and it was very magical. Uh, <clears throat> at that time, my parents had just moved to a, a new house, Blank Slate uh, Subdivision, a typical track house in Michigan, uh, and uh, I was the only fit person in the family interested in the garden. So they gave me free reign, encouraged my interest. Uh, I started growing vegetables and flowers, and became so interested that I joined a local 4-H club. Now, typically 4-H is associated with farms, but this is a suburban chapter, and uh, I did everything connected with plants. I did uh, vegetable gardening, I did flowers, I did wildflower identification, flower arranging. I had a grand time for about four years, and that really set my whole interest in gardening um, on a path that got interrupted with schooling and college and uh, living in big cities like uh, New Haven, uh, San Francisco, and New York. But then uh, in 1984, when I bought my own house, I had a tiny little plot. I, it all came back. All the years of uh, concrete and asphalt uh, seemed to have just reinforced my interest in nature and in plants. And, and both my wife and I became very avid gardeners, uh, and we gardened just about every inch of that plot <laughs> and then moved to a slightly bigger house with a, a walled garden, um, very different from most American gardens, but the great advantage is that the walls keep the deer out. It's a, it's a prize garden like in, in, that you don't see from the street, but he walked through the house and walk into a, a private preserve, which is uh, great fun. And uh, we we do everything we can with it, uh, from uh, growing plants from seed, from hybridizing daylilies, from uh, berries and vegetables, um, and uh, it's all consuming. What brought you ultimately to the Garden Conservancy and your work there? In my early career 
was in uh, communications and graphic design, uh, advertising, PR. Uh, I worked on Wall Street for 18 years. I ran the uh, corporate advertising program for J.P. Morgan worldwide, which is great fun. Uh, but about 14 years ago, with all the mergers and change in the uh, uh, financial world, I, it seemed to be a good time to take my professional skills and combine it with my personal interests. Uh, so I uh, explored other options. I went to the New York Botanical Garden and worked in their communications department for six years, and then um, came to the Garden Conservancy uh, a little over seven years ago. So it was a, a, a marriage of my uh, my skills, my profession, with uh, my interests, uh, which has really been a renewal uh, for my profession. Yeah. Describe for us the sort of history of the Garden Conservancy, from Francis Cabot seeing Ruth Bancroft's garden and saying, we need to do something to conserve this garden in the in the sort of spirit of this remarkable gardener. Talk about its history from that beginning moment and where where it has come to at this point. Yes. Um, uh, Frank Cabot uh, visited Ruth Bancroft and her wonderful dry garden in 1988. Uh, and as you know, he came out of that thinking something has to be done to preserve this garden. And he took quick action. Uh, in 1989, he pulled together uh, a number of friends and uh, created an advisory committee uh, from people around the, the country uh, to brainstorm on how things could be uh, arranged to create an organization uh, that would help preserve wonderful gardens for the public to enjoy, not just for the owners, but to open them up for everyone. Um, he um, hired uh, Antonia Dezio as the first founding director. Together, they uh, did outreach, uh, and uh, you know, within a year or two, had an organization that uh, had a handful of projects and continued growing. Um, so today, uh, we are uh, about 27 years after the founding, uh, we have three main activities, uh, garden preservation, which was our core founding activity. Uh, we have helped preserve more than 75 gardens across 22 states, wow. including uh, the District of Columbia and also two Canadian provinces. Um, and the, the activity varies greatly from uh, advice to actually hands-on uh, management of a project. Uh, we do not intend to hold and own gardens forever, but to make them community assets that are self-sustaining. Uh, in the last year, for example, we have provided various sorts of preservation assistance to 24 gardens, and we've also responded to uh, more than 22 inquiries about potential projects. The second activity is uh, sharing gardens, opening private gardens through our Open Days program, uh, which was launched in 1995 by uh, two very intrepid women, uh, Paige Dickey and Pepe Maynard, who uh, modeled the idea on England's um, 
Garden Visiting Program, and they gathered a portfolio of uh, 110 gardens in the uh, Connecticut and the southeastern New York area and launched Open Days. Uh, it is now uh, a national program. Uh, it, it averages about 70 uh, garden visit 70,000, excuse me, 70,000 garden visitors every year. Uh, last year it uh, was in 17 states plus Washington, D.C. Since the program began in 95, more than a million visitors have been part of the program in 38 states. Wow. And uh, more than 3,400 private gardens have participated. So this unlocks the gates uh, uh, for the public to enjoy private gardens. And the third activity uh, that uh, is part of our programming is our educational program. Uh, And we sponsor lectures, symposia, speaking engagements throughout the country, mostly in some of the core areas where we have larger constituencies of membership. Mm we have about 4,000 members nationwide. Uh, we tend to cluster in the Los Angeles area, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, but also are very active in the Southeast and Washington, D.C., and other places. So this sort of trifecta of, of opening and making gardens and gardening really accessible to this enormous audience that might not otherwise have access to these things. When it comes to the garden, so like you describe, you know, being, um, receiving a a pretty large number of inquiries about gardens, perhaps looking for help or consultation. What, how is a garden chosen to either take on as a mentorship or take on as a full garden conservancy garden? What are the criteria that you, uh, as a as a group or a panel, um, look for? Right. For a preservation partner garden, uh, we look at a number of different factors. Each one is very different. Uh, every garden is a different uh, set of priorities. Uh, but the issues always do address these topics. The design significance of the garden, the horticultural interests, its plant collections, uh, the historical and cultural value, its significance in history and culture, and the community benefit, either potential or current. Um, the gardens need to be viable as public gardens. For, the, for us to take them on. I mean, there are beautiful gardens that simply are inaccessible or have uh, no parking or no way for the public to get there, uh, or where the community is simply not interested or has an overabundance of uh, gardens and, uh, and no interest in adding more. Uh, there, are, there are questions of management, maintenance, scale, and access, and uh, the whole question of partnership. Everything we do is a partnership with community organizations, with the garden owners, uh, and everybody has to see a, a common benefit mm-hmm. for to become a public garden. The criteria for open days, of course, are different because these are individual private gardens that are uh, 
open to the public just in a certain day. Uh, and it really is an individual decision made through our network of regional representatives uh, rather than our board of directors and our central departments. Uh, so uh, we tr look for gardens that would be of interest to people. They are significant and uh, outstanding gardens in one way or another. Many of the factors of design, horticultural interests, historical value, from rooftop gardens to tiny uh, town setting gardens to large estates, uh, different climates, different regions, and uh, to demonstrate the variety and richness of gardening across the country. Now, that brings up for me um, an issue that I find ongoing in kind of the gardening world, in gardening conferences I attend, in garden uh, groups, whether local or national, the, the issue of diversity and how um, organizations or groups are addressing multiculturalism and age in their, in, you know, in their group, what they are reflecting and representing. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and today on Cultivating Place, we're joined by George Shakespeare, Director of Communications for the Garden Conservancy, a nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving exceptional gardens and landscapes for the future. We'll be back after a break to hear more about the Garden Conservancy, their gardens, and their Open Days program. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Today we're speaking with George Shakespeare, Director of Communications for the Garden Conservancy, a nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving exceptional gardens and landscapes for the future. We're back after a break to hear more about the gardens and their Open Days program. Welcome back. My question for you, because I am familiar with quite a few Garden Conservancy projects, and I'm always impressed with the, um, yeah, the diversity of interests and plant collections and backgrounds of the gardeners, um, and sometimes just straight up quirkiness, beautiful but quirky gardens that, that get included. Is this a criteria that the, the Conservancy keeps in mind, and how, how do you personally see it reflecting in, in what you offer to the public? One of the wonderful things about gardening is that you can do it on any scale. <laughs> it's as much about the person as it is about the garden, about the plants, about nature. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can garden on a windowsill. Uh, we do look for uh, gardens that are, have interest in, in terms of the story they tell about the, the creator uh, the story they tell about the region, about the uh, flora of an area, the horticultural collection. We do actively look to represent a variety uh, in many ways, in, in variety of significant designers, be it uh, Beatrix Ferrand or Jens Jensen. Uh, we look at uh, representing a variety of uh, of. Uh, connections to other cultural activities. Many of our gardens are connected to uh, writers, to artists, uh, and in the cases like the Elizabeth Lawrence Garden mm -hmm. in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, that was what she considered her working laboratory, and as she did her well-known books on Southern gardening. Uh, and 
while it's a tiny garden, it gives you insight and into her writings uh, and it adds to the cultural significance of that place and the inspiration people can draw from it. Likewise, uh, we have worked with Steepletop, the Garden of St. Vincent Millay, Mm -hmm. which is the northern New York State, uh, which was also very connected to her writing, to her poetry. Uh, and many of the gardens uh, of, of, our, of our current projects are, uh, one way or another, uh, inspiration for the owners and, we hope, uh, for visitors and for the public as well. So many years ago, George, I also wrote about the gardens of Alcatraz for House and Garden in New York, no longer in publication, sadly. And it was as it was being introduced as a garden conservancy garden Talk about that history and the importance of this very non-traditional garden. Yeah, the Gardens of Alcatraz are really an exciting story. It was a 10-year project for the Garden Conservancy starting in 2003 in partnership with uh, the National Park Service and the Golden Gate uh, Parks Service. And uh, together, uh, we restored gardens that had been created on a very improbable place, uh, created by wardens, by prisoners, by people who brought in soil and water to a, what essentially was a barren rock beforehand. And this started in the 19th century, uh, it continued throughout the 20th century until the prisons were closed. And then for 20 years, for 40 years, the uh, gardens have been abandoned. So when we got involved, it was to restore these gardens, to, to give some color and life back to the bleak rock, as it had originally done for the prisoners, uh, and to bring some beauty and solace to their lives. Uh, it, it was a very excellent uh, example perfect example of uh, some of the roles gardens can play in uh, bringing uh, humanity to a place that's very hostile. Uh, and the gardens have been restored with volunteers. It's been a huge community effort. It's now self-sustaining, run by the Golden Gate Park Service. And uh, it, it's really bringing joy and, and, and to now to visitors to the uh, prison, uh, just as it brought joy and life to the prisoners years ago. I think it's a wonderful illustration about the, the range of gardens that are deemed important or rich in their legacy and um, what they can teach us going forward as garden gardeners and garden visitors. Now, this might, of course, be different. I think it is different for every visitor, every gardener or gardener. But for you personally, George, what what is it that makes a garden compelling and and great? It can be many things. And uh, I'm often surprised by what catches my eye or piques my interest in different gardens. But I think the the core is a garden that tells you something about the person who created it, that has a personality. It's not out of uh, a book of uh, ideas uh, and landscape plans that somebody has copied. 
uh, it has a personality, it has an interest in a particular type of plant or in, in, in a particular message like the Pearl Fryer Topiary Garden. Which yes. Quite eccentric in mm-hmm. South Carolina, uh, created by uh, somebody who had a vision of doing something different, and he did, uh, and he wanted to make a beautiful garden uh, in the area that was not accustomed to African-Americans having gorgeous gardens and with no budget to getting plants from uh, uh, rejects from uh, the uh, nurseries around him uh, and reviving the plants, growing them into exotic shapes. Uh, it was totally creative activity. Yeah. Uh, and, and that type of thing excites me uh, as much as, you know, beautiful estate garden, many multiple garden rooms and landscapes, etc. For listeners that might not be familiar um, with the Pearl Fryer Garden in Bishopville, South Carolina, uh, I visited it many years ago with my, my mother, a professional gardener, and my aunt, a historic garden um, head gardener, and sisters. Describe the Pearl Fryer Garden in a little more detail for people. Yeah. The Pearl Fryer Garden is a uh, about three acres, uh, and it's a collection of uh, mostly evergreens, but also a combination of deciduous trees uh, that Profar has collected over many years and is, is sculpted into, I would say, fanciful shapes, mm-hmm. uh, not your typical uh, topiary box or peacock. Uh, the, these are very abstract, grand shapes, and many of them towering at this point, yeah. uh, requiring uh, pruning from a tall ladder or a forklift. Uh, and he's inspired the entire neighborhood, in fact, the whole town, uh, to grow similar things. It's become uh, an attraction to a town in, in a very poor area yeah. of South Carolina. Uh, and uh, it, in many ways, it's revived uh, the whole area of yeah, which is pretty powerful to see um, the influence of of a gardener or or garden on a place, which is um, hopeful, in my opinion. In yes. your in your experience, what what are the lessons for for gardeners and garden visitors that the Garden Conservancy offers? Yeah. I I think the uh, the role of a garden is inherently a connector. It's a connector between uh, humans and nature. It mm. brings people and nature together. Uh, it connects people to people. Uh, gardens are local community centers in many cases. Uh, there's a whole network of gardening uh, fanatics around the country, which you also get connected to uh, by being part of it. Uh, and it connects people to history and culture because gardens inherently reflect their time. Uh, and not only the creator, but the, the whole era and the interest in, in different landscape design ideas and mm-hmm. different architectural ideas, different ideas of what art is, and different ideas of what nature is and in, in, in the human's connection to nature whether it be uh, in uh, you know, worrying about climate change, worrying about uh, how we can uh, deal with invasive plants, uh, with uh, pesticides. Uh, gardens are connectors, and I think that they can 
teach us all many lessons in, in all those connections. The Open Days program started, I think, this year in early April, April 2nd, and its final open day, I believe, is in North Carolina on October 29th. I'm really looking forward to visiting more Garden Conservancy Gardens in 2017, and I am very much looking forward to getting to as many of the open days as I can next year. George Shakespeare, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. George Shakespeare is the Director of Communications for the Garden Conservancy, based in Cold Springs, New York. The Garden Conservancy is an American nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving exceptional gardens and landscapes for the future. Annually, the Conservancy hosts a dynamic Open Days program, bringing access to many, many exceptional private gardens across the country each year to members. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Next week, we'll hear from a slightly different kind of heritage garden when we're joined by Gail Reed, garden manager of Blythewold, a 33-acre estate on Rhode Island's Narragansett Bay. Blythewold is nationally significant as one of the most fully developed examples of the country place era. The property features a series of gardens both poetic and practical, an exceptional collection of rare and unusual plants, specimen trees, greenhouse, and whimsical stonework unique to this New England coastal place, past and present. Blythewold is a member of the American Public Gardens Association and is recognized by the Garden Conservancy as one of the best preserved estates of its kind in the country, with one of the most significant collection of trees in New England. Blythewold is Welsh for happy wood. Hope you'll listen. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos and Garden Conservancy and Open Days membership information, please visit JewelGarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.